Welcome to the Good Ship Illustration Podcast. We're here to offer no-nonsense advice for illustrators and image makers navigating a creative career. Our course, Find Your Creative Voice, Fly Your Freak Flag, is open in its doors on the 31st of July, um, but we'll talk more about that later. So this is the first episode of our podcast, and we're going to be talking illustration, answering questions, interviewing creatives, and giving no-nonsense advice. But first of all, we're just going to talk about uh, our careers and how we found our creative voice and maybe give you some idea of um, what we do and who we are. So I'm Tanya Willis. I'm Helen Stevens, And I'm Katie Chappell. We think of ourselves as the three bears of the illustration industry because we've all worked in different areas and different eras of illustration and I think we've added up that we have about 60 years experience between us. We all live in the same town and we used to meet up together to um, get over the cabin fever of being illustrators working alone in their studios. And every time we met up, we just felt better and better from sharing experiences and talking to each other about the different areas of our illustration. And that's how we came to form The Good Ship because it was such a supportive group. We realised other people felt the same and we wanted to share the advice. And I think it was when we were having those coffees we realized that we'd all had like a time in our creative careers where we'd grappled with like finding creative voice and maybe like taking time out and starting again almost. I think it's a really common problem if you've been to art school or even if you haven't been to art school it's that thing of trying to maintain your voice when you're working for clients. It's so easy when you first leave art school to just kind of be available to everybody and do whatever it takes to get that job and if they want a colour change one way and it doesn't feel right to you, you do it regardless because you're a real illustrator now and it can really knock you sideways and kind of forget who you are creatively. A lot of it's confidence, isn't it? You know, when you've said before, Helen, when you've done mentoring, the same thing comes up over and over again is a confidence in in yourself as an illustrator and I think going back to what you said, young illustrators leave college and they don't have the confidence to say to a client this is what I do if you like it commission me for it I I remember not having that self-belief so you would really do whatever they needed it's only much later on when you realize in doing that you've dissipated all the characteristics in your work and you know ultimately if, if that has happened it's very difficult to um, sell your identity to a client and make yourself memorable and you become a jack of all trades and that's the, that's the scary thing that you're, you're dispensable. That's right though, I think if you, if you don't know your own creative voice you can just be pulled in all directions and it doesn't make you stand out from the crowd of other, other illustrators. Remember you talked as well about longevity of career. If you don't know what your work is, you don't know what you're drawing on from ins- for inspiration and you're not looking at a longer career because your work changes too much over a few years. You want to find a strong identity and it makes it easier for you to project that, that style of work, although we don't like the word style, do we? It's sometimes you still have to use that word. What I've found over the years, though, is that actually um, what a publisher or a client really wants is to hear your voice and they're really relieved if you say, actually, that won't work, but I've got this solution. But I think when you when you first start out, you're just kind of an, well, at least I was, a bit of a kind of empty vessel waiting for them to tell you what to do. And you've got the power the wrong way around. But it takes so long to work that out. I suppose, like, was that how you ended up finding your creative voice, Helen? Was that because you'd felt like you wanted to 
go in your own direction more? Yeah, when well, when I left art school, so Tanya was my tutor at art school. I went to Glasgow School of Art, studied illustration, which was brilliant, lots of good fun. But I don't think I ever considered what it would be like to leave art school. I think I thought I was going to be there forever. It was quite a shock to the system to leave. And when I did leave, this is cut in a long story, very short. I started to write and illustrate picture books and it all looked very exciting from the outside. I had lots of clients. I was having so many clients I could turn work down. I was making lots of board books for babies and they were selling all over the world and I was making a reasonable income but I just felt really torn between um, what my actual voice was and the work that I was doing in the books. So when I was at art school I'd drawn from life all the time and had big stacks of sketchbooks, really loved drawing from life, lots of reportage drawing and when I headed down to London with my folio of work, this is pre-internet days, of course, publishers wanted to see something that wasn't just a sketchbook drawing. And so I kind of worked really hard at turning this work into something publishable. I was like a sponge for advice. I would just take on any advice that the publishers gave me to get published. And so in that process, I lost my own voice, really. There was a lot of advice about um, upping my colours, making them brighter and more pastel colours and everything happy. In the end, I felt like I was just sort of stuck in this happy coffin of bright colours that I just couldn't get out of. It was just, oh, no. it was painful. It was really difficult. And so in the end, I decided that I would just take a year out and go back to my sketchbooks and find a bridge between what I'd done at art school and my sketchbooks and a type of illustration work that would be useful and good for a picture book that wasn't this flat, bright, coloured world, something where I could express happiness and sadness and danger and excitement and anger and all of the things children feel. This kind of bright palette that I was stuck in was, it was a trap. It was really, it was, yeah, it just wasn't making me happy. So I took a year out, went back to my sketchbooks and came back a much happier illustrator you were writing as well, weren't you, Helen? Didn't you write the, the first books that you did? You were yeah. writing the stories. So were you being asked to change the stories as well as the the images uh, as well, the tone or the emotional quality? So speaking as an author. Not so much the writing. I think because I, I think of myself as an illustrator first, I don't really mind being edited as long as something doesn't feel ethically wrong. So mm. I don't really mind working with an editor. I really quite enjoy that. As long as it doesn't feel ethically wrong or it's going in a direction that seems too sweet or or too cute, then I'm happy to be edited. It was the artwork that I felt I was being, that my personality was being infringed. And also I was being published in the early 90s when at the time publishers were really keen not to give a book a sense of place because they wanted to sell the book all over the world. And the theory at the time was that if your book had a sense of place, then children in another country wouldn't be able to associate with it. And so if I drew a sash window or um, an aerial on the top of a roof, it would look too British and therefore it wouldn't sell. And so I was doing towns that were just pink walls with windows that were just a square with no wooden, just no decoration, nothing that looked too British in it. And it was just a theory of the time. Thank goodness we're past that now. Yeah, because that's the observational part, isn't it? If you're doing, if your work's coming from observational drawing, then it's imbued with a sense of 
place and characteristics and some of our most favourite children's books are the escapism of reading a book set in the Caribbean or drawings from India or something like that. It just sounds awful to have to strip down the characteristics of a town to a pink wall with glass windows in it. It was soul destroying (laughs) and by the end I remember that I, I signed a contract to do four books and I had to sort of use my left hand to force my right hand to do the drawings because I just couldn't bear it anymore. I almost stopped being an illustrator completely, but in the end just decided it'd be more sensible to take a year out and work my way back in from a direction that felt more comfortable for me. During that year out, I went to Battersea Dogs Home. I was drawing every day with and not putting any pressure on myself for any of those drawings to become a book. I was being really careful about not drawing for a purpose and I would go out drawing every day and I went to Battersea Dogs Home one day and I met this dog I met lots of dogs but one in particular was called (laughs) Finn and he was about to be adopted when I was drawing him and he was such an amazing dog he gave me eye contact and he was kind of sat like he was posing for the drawings he was so lovely and anyway he sat in my sketchbook for ages and ages because I was determined that these drawings would not be stories that I still had work to do before that would happen. And then a few months later, I took that sketchbook down off the shelf and thought, oh, he'd be quite a nice character. And I had the word Fleabag written in another sketchbook and I put the two things together and they became a book called Fleabag, which was set around when, where I lived in Hammersmith and Battersea. And, you know, that book did better than any book I'd ever done before. So all those nerves about taking a year out and finding my own voice, I really wish I could have gone back and said to younger me, don't worry about it, you're doing the right thing. That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to say, it must have felt nerve-wracking. Like, you take this year out and then be like, what if I go back and there's nothing there anymore? Like, how did was it okay after Fleabag? Yes, it was just brilliant after that. As soon as I did that first book, which was more linked to my sketchbooks, that felt more me, everything was great after that. And, but you know, that wasn't the end of the journey. With every book I do, I do kind of re-examine how I want to tackle this book and... It's an ongoing process, but yes, that year out was the best thing I ever did. That, that's so brave to, to take the year out and to sustain yourself throughout that year and saying, this is the right thing to do. I, you know, I believe in myself. I'm not working. And these, the drawings that I'm doing count for something. I'm not just frittering it away. I think that's the difficult part when you're um, making a change in your life and it's not being rewarded with cash or payments that make you think I am a real person earning a living once you stop and you take the money out of the transaction and you're just exploring your your creative self how did you find the self-belief to say I will stay this course for a year just drawing because it is the right uh, thing to do you know sometimes when a decision is just out of your control it is so desperately needed by every single cell in your body it was like that it was just one of those things where if I didn't change it, I, I, there was no other alternative. But also I was having some psychotherapy at the time. So before that year out, I think I felt all of my life was slightly out of control, or at least other people could be in charge of it more than I was. And so I'd had some psychotherapy, which led to that year of me thinking, ah, actually, this is for me to sort out. Only I can do this work. And I'm going to do it. I'm asking because I find it really interesting that that free fall year where you're in charge of yourself, it, it resonates with um, leaving art college having done fine art. And you think, so I'm painting. I don't know what I'm painting for, 
do I have a very strong message that I have to tell the world? And will anyone ever see these paintings? Um, I'm in a studio working. Is this real life? Is this a career? That, that whole confusion of whether you are actually moving yourself forward in your work. It's interesting that it happened in illustration as well, in an applied art, as well as fine art, because I think a lot of creative people feel this in all areas, craftspeople as well, I'm sure. They're making things and wondering if they'll ever see the light of day or will they turn into a big project. But you ha you're often, you can have moments where you question whether this is even a real life. Is this a real career? Am I just making it all up? It reminds me a bit of that Ira Glass quote that we sometimes talk about. I bet you can remember it better than me, Katie, but you talk something about... It's the gap, isn't it? It's like there's when you start making a work, you're in it because you have great taste. I'm butchering this, by the way, but it's like you've got you're in this job because you've got great taste, but the work you're making isn't as good as you want it to be. But you know it's not good. That's why you're in it. And then it's like yeah, it talks about like this gap of years that it takes for your work to catch up with your your taste for good work. Yeah. I always yeah. wonder about that, Tanya, because you studied fine art at first about. I always wonder about if you study fine art, we, we're all at art school when we're so young. How do you know what you want to express in your work when you're basically a child at art school? I've always thought that. I think people should go to art school when they're old, when they're full of experience and they've got something to say and they have wisdom. Because if the same can be true of illustrators going to a client and saying, tell me what you want me to draw, it's the same in fine art. And it's not really addressed. Like, you don't know what you're supposed to be painting about. Are you painting to become technically a better painter? Or are you here as some kind of guru to paint great messages to the world? If so, what are they? But no one really ever talks about why you're painting. And at least with, with illustration, there's a sense of I am going to be working with a client who will provide content for me. And then I will know what to do with that content. And for illustrators who go into an editorial career, that's quite straightforward because you're looking at ways of visually translating using metaphor and um, methods of articulating other people's content. What I find interesting about children's book illustration is that you're writing, so you're still providing your own content and message as well as illustrating it. So actually children's book illustration is closer to the fine arts than editorial illustration, yet we regard children's book illustration as a very workaday, applied, vocational kind of um, illustration form. But in fact, it's entirely self-motivated in the same way that fine art is. I'd never thought of it like that before. Yeah. When I look at what you do, I was thinking, yeah, you're providing your own content on both levels. The, so real, the upside of writing your own story is that you can write about what you want to draw. That's how I ended up writing. <laughs> yeah, I like dogs, so it's going to be a dog yeah. story. Brilliant. It was as simple as that, yeah. If I waited for somebody else to give me a story, it always had something in it that I really didn't want to illustrate. I think that's the, that's the trick in editorial illustration as well. People give you, you know, the real mainstay in the early days is working for, particularly in Hong Kong, the magazines that had... Um, a good budget to pay contributors would usually be financial and business magazines and hedge fund managers were my mainstay. You can imagine drawing another man in a suit, oh god no. And then we had the, the studio I used to work in, we had a kind of unofficial dictionary of verboten symbolism including men in suits on a tightrope. If you used that you were a total loser. <laughs> or people standing on scales in a suit. There was a total 80s mainstay 
and yeah. so we there was yeah you'd be marked down if you did any of those but that was when I was working with Big Orange in the studios in Shoreditch but in Hong Kong you're like oh no there's another hedge fund manager shall I have him actually clipping a hedge that's a good idea let's have him on a ladder and then convert convert it to a graph with lots of different ladders oh I'm so glad I don't have to draw those things anymore but the illustration would all be about how can I take something I don't want to draw and come up with such a good metaphor a people will understand the metaphor and b I get to draw a thing I'd like to draw can I convert the hedge fund managers into a dog or a building or I don't know Tanya you so you studied fine art at first and then you jumped ship to illustration how did that happen well I, I think like most students, when you're on foundation course, you don't really understand the different nuances between the course. Like most kids, they, I'm good at drawing, so I'm going to do a course that will help me do my good drawings and get better at them. And that the obvious answer to that always seems to be fine art, and you don't look much further into it. Whereas halfway through the fine art, co- art course, I had a very... Um, I felt like it was a really disloyal thought, and I just really wanted to do graphic design, and I regretted being on the fine art course and wished I'd either done illustration or, or graphic design. So by the end of it, I realised I hadn't got anything that I really wanted to say to the world. I also didn't like going back to my the village I'd come from, which was a farming village, and they'd say things like, what, what are you drawing then? What kind of things are you drawing? I couldn't explain to them what I was drawing. I'd say, talk to them a bit about performance art, you know, they weren't interested in that and I thought I don't want my life to be so divided that I can't talk to my old friends about what I'm doing and I wanted it to be useful as well again because I think I am quite literal and pragmatic so I wanted a job that did something that I could see as worthwhile or useful which is kind of why I have this secret admiration for graphic design because of posters and activism and all the things you can Um, harness your skills to but I decided illustration was the seemed to be the next logical step so I applied to the Royal College and um, took all my paintings and printmaking from I'd been at West Surrey College of Art and Design and applied there thinking this isn't going to work but what was great it's like showing a client a sketchbook you don't think they will understand it but if it's a good client they'll see more of you in that sketchbook than they will in some of your finished over art directed pictures of men on tight ropes in suits and that's where you might escape that that terrible world of hedge fund illustrations so yeah I did two years at the Royal College and that was that was great it was an MA so they weren't teaching a lot about industry it was assumed you understood what the illustration industry was about and the nuts and bolts of it but actually I didn't and I really wanted to know about that it helped develop my work but I learnt on the job when I left college because I had no idea really how to approach art directors or what they wanted from me because you were producing work for a degree show at the at the end of your course I ended up doing illustrating a lot of Yeats poetry how that connected with construction monthly was a whole other world (laughs) that's the bit I didn't understand when I showed them these very emotive kind of fiction based illustrations or poetry based illustrations how do you find clients who will Um, employ you for that because adult fiction doesn't use illustration and also children's book illustration I think that's quite difficult as a 23 year old you I didn't understand whether I was appropriate for children's book illustration or what they were looking for so I left college worked in I had a studio in Shoreditch for about five years with the 
the group, our year group that we'd graduated from, who were actually a really proactive, extremely talented bunch of people, and we, it was a, a really supportive system, a bit like Good Ship is for us now. We gave each other advice about different areas of illustration. We shared client lists so that we could send out postcards to clients and do our marketing. It was very rudimentary marketing at the time, pre-internet. And then I got an opportunity to go to Hong Kong, and that was um, 1990s. Four, and I thought I'd go over for six months to have a quick look see, but then I stayed there for 25 years and didn't come home. And actually, Hong Kong didn't have a very big illustration industry. When I got there as an editorial illustrator, I realised that Hong Kong magazines, versions of magazines I'd worked for in the UK, like Elle or Vogue, only had tiny distribution in Hong Kong because Hong Kongers read traditional Chinese writing whereas in China they read simplified Chinese. So the, they're two different industries. The distribution in Hong Kong is very small because it's a small area. So they were offering things like £70 for an illustration for Elle magazine. I was like, how can anyone make a living on this? It was bad enough in the UK. So I started working for newspapers. I worked on a, on a redesign of a newspaper, did regular contributions to Hong Kong's main paper and then ended up working for a lot of corporate clients. So it's a long, <laughs> it's a long-winded explanation but yeah that's kind of how, that's my journey into discovering my, my own work really is moving away from editorial and having a lot more freedom. Did you feel as well like the physical, like the geographical move to Hong Kong was helpful as well in like starting fresh or just being away from peers and things? Totally. Yeah, it really was because that's that self-esteem and confidence issue we talked about at the time. I wasn't very confident. We did have an extremely talented, high-flying group of um, peers in in our MA. And because I still hadn't kind of figured out whether I was a fine artist or an illustrator, I was still a bit in betweeny. Um, yeah, I had a confidence issue. And I think when I went off on my own somewhere else, I found it a lot easier to rebuild myself in my own terms without, you remember you say the comparitis, Katie? That's so bad, isn't it, when you're always comparing yourself? And I think I did have that quite badly. So it was great to kind of hide from that and reinvent myself on my own terms. I found that leaving London and moving to Berwick the same. I know it wasn't such a huge cultural shock as leaving London to go to Hong Kong, but I was in London for about 17 years around all the publishers, all the other authors and illustrators. And then we moved up to Berwick, which is a little coastal town. And it, it was brilliant. It was really liberating not to know what everybody else was up to all the time and just be able to concentrate on my own thing. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that should be, everyone should undertake for a while. I can imagine coming up to Berwick, just being alone to find out what you sound like, what you look like when not looking over your shoulder, not looking at other people's work. It's so hard to stay true to yourself. I mean, what did you do, Katie? But between, can you talk about your BA and your MA and that, that journey between the two? Where, how did you find your voice? Yeah, so I I graduated in 2012. I went to Sunderland Uni and it was it was a good course and everything and the tutors were all lovely and I got I got a graphic design job. Like I got headhunted before I'd even graduated and they were like, "That's amazing, Katie. This is so successful." And I was kind of swept along with that like what they thought was a really inverted commas a really good job. 
And I got to this office in Durham and I remember being like, it's going to get better. Like, it's going to be good soon. <laughs> I was like, I was illustrating and I was graphic designing and it was just little things like emailing people that are like two feet away from you and having to make coffee for middle-aged men and then being like, well done, good work, like good girl pat on the head sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> I was just gradually building with rage <laughs> in this job. Um and it got to, I think I managed three months before I was sacked. <laughs> so then I was like, you know what? This is not for me. Like if that's successful graphic design illustration, then I don't really want any. But I, so I went back to my retail job and I did illustration. I just basically took whatever freelance jobs I could get. And I was doing like three days a week in retail. And I had a studio space in Newcastle. There was like, very cheap studio spaces, which was brilliant. It was basically a desk in a big building that was going to get demolished and I could use this desk anytime. I think it was like £12 a month. It was crazy. Anyway, I could afford it, which was good. (laughs) But I I was working like seven days a week because I was in retail on minimum wage and I wasn't charging very much for my illustration because I hadn't been taught that and I didn't have the confidence to charge more. Um, I just got to a point where I was like, this is also rubbish. (laughs) So... (laughs) I was like, I'm also opting out of this. Like, I've tried two kinds of illustration now and I don't like either. So I went and I got a nanny job in Italy. So I went from Newcastle to Florence and it was just the best thing ever for me at that time. So I'd like gone from sort of paddling like a, you know, like swans underwater. They're like paddling all the time to keep going. And (laughs) I got to Italy and this family, they were brilliant. They let me look after the children and they had an eco-friendly clothing business for children and they had me do like odd bits of graphic design for that but they like housed me fed me (laughs) gave me some pocket money and I had all this time to work on my own stuff away from the pressures of like work worrying about bills and what other people were doing and as well like well like you well both of you Helen and Tanya like the geographical move away from the northeast to somewhere else where I was completely doing my own thing that really helped And after a while in Italy, I moved to Germany and I was a nanny in Berlin as well. I went for like three months and three years later, I was still there. So I was like accidental. This is nice. I will stay here. Was Um, was Berlin really inspiring? Yeah, Berlin Mm. was amazing. It was like, it was super cheap to live. Everybody was an artist. I just went to yoga every day. I got a studio space and... Yeah, it was just like a party all the time. (laughs) But it did get to a point in three years when I was like, this is like a party all the time. And I would quite like to, well, I decided to do my master's degree. So I was like, I I think I've forgiven illustration (laughs) for like, for being rubbish. So I was like, I'll go and I'll do my master's. So I got into Edinburgh College of Art, which was like my dream from age 16 I'd been taken there on a school trip and I remember just the smell of the oil paint and seeing the statues and I was like, I want to study here. But it just, it took a bit longer than I expected. But I went, did my master's and then I think like, well, in the intervening years when I was a nanny, I had just been making work for myself, filling my sketchbooks and I wasn't putting any pressure on myself to like make my rent money or like please any clients. And it was those sketchbooks that got me into my master's because they'd seen that I was just really obsessed with like reportage and observational drawing and that I just wanted to draw pictures. And it was it was completely different to the work that I'd been doing at my BA. So it was like the the five years between BA and MA. 
had like basically given up on being an illustrator and then come back to it in a sort of roundabout accidental way and inadvertently found my creative voice I suppose just by being like sod off illustration I hate this it's interesting that we all kind of gave up on it and in the time we gave up on it and we were free then we found our creative voices and came back that's interesting that isn't it Especially as well, and hearing Katie's story in more detail, it's amazing. I mean, we give yeah. each other potted histories, shorthand versions of what we've done, and we think we understand each other. But to, to find people's real stories is really fascinating. You know, the enrichment of living in Berlin and absorbing all that creative inspiration into your work sounds amazing. And can we go and live with your Ita- Italian yes. employers? I want that life now. <laughs> but it's so, yeah, that opting out is almost like where the education really happens. Going back though to the work that you've both done, reportage and a book illustration supported by a body of observational work, it's interesting on timescales as well because I find myself as we're working together and going through watching you do Art Club and I'm thinking why don't I do more observational drawing? Why has observational drawing been less important in my illustration career compared to the way you both work? And just by articulating ideas about the way editorial, corporate or advertising works, quite often you're drawing from given references and they're they're weird references that you can't go and look at to draw. So it's almost, the conversation is explaining to me, oh, that's why you've always got a photograph in front of yourself. And I, I hate drawing from photographs as much as the next person. And all through teaching you say, no, you can't draw from photographs, they'll look dead, which most of the time they do. But I think it was my career has been a lot about trying to draw things and take them away from their photographic pedestrian starting point and make them into something more individual that has a bit more presence. But I can see from the observational drawing that you both do. It feeds your work so much and it's such an essential part of what you do. I envy it, actually. It's really essential to what I do because if I wrote a story without imagining a real place... It wouldn't anchor properly. It wouldn't sit right in my mind. And so I like to imagine somewhere I've been or the place where I live. I just like to set it somewhere quite early on in the idea. Even if in the end the book, you can't even tell where it was set or that I did any drawing from life. It just helps the whole thing feel real to me while I'm making it. Katie, you, you do lots of observational drawing as well. So how does that come into your work and your personal voice? So I think like the the observational drawing that I did in those five years, it just sort of kept me drawing and stuff and didn't directly feed into my work until I got to doing my MA. I did a project where I was like interviewing people about their collections and drawing them at the same time. So I'd be like drawing a portrait of them and then kind of drawing what they were talking about around their head. And it was through that that I accidentally discovered like graphic recording and scribing and live illustration, which is what I do now live illustrating for like Google and Facebook and stuff but at the time I'd, I was just like I'm just drawing what they're talking about so I'm like drawing what I can see in front of me but I'm also drawing the things they're telling me out of like just how I imagine it so it was like a weird combination of observational and like almost like icons out of my head. Can you yeah. talk a bit about live illustration because some people won't know what it is and scribing can you describe it a bit? Um, I didn't know what it was till I started doing it <laughs> as well. I was like, oh, it's got a name, brilliant, people can pay me to do this. <laughs> um, so it's 
it's a combination. Sometimes live illustration is like live event illustration, like I'm a performance at an event. So for instance, like painting, I painted windows in Regent Street for Nespresso because they were talking about how great their coffee was and stuff. And then sometimes it's um, more like scribing in a meeting. So rather than having boring written notes, I'll draw what people are talking about and make it into a sort of visual narrative. And then the nice thing with that is the people that I'm illustrating for, they get the images to send to people that are at the meeting and they also get like a video that automatically gets generated while I'm drawing. So yeah, it's, it's kind of got two sides to it. There's like the live event illustration and then the other one that's like practical notes. And when you're doing the practical notes, are those on a wall or on your iPad and they project them? How do they, how do get to, people get to see what you're doing? At the moment, because we're kind of still in half lockdown pandemic mode while we're recording this, it's all on my iPad, on Zoom meetings. But like in the olden days, <laughs> before lockdown, I used to go and sometimes it'd be like a giant piece of paper on the wall or a roll of paper and I'd be doing big drawings or I'd be on my iPad and they'd have it beaming onto a big screen or a projection so that everybody can see. So yeah, there's loads of different ways people use it. What about live illustration? Are there two types? Like in live illustration... Is some of it observational, drawing from life with people around, like drawing the people who are there? Yes. Yeah, sometimes it is observational. So like being, instead of a photographer, I'll like draw what's going on. And sometimes for workshops and stuff, if there's children there and they don't want to have to get loads of permission slips, they'll get me to draw what they're doing and draw the activities. And then a way of recording the workshop and they get pictures afterwards to use in their social media or whatever if you know you're going to say a conference about wind turbines or whatever do you do a bit of research before you go to see what they look like so that when you get there you can or do you completely wing it it depends how confident I'm feeling (laughs) so like when when I went to work for google I thought I was gonna die so I was like researching everything I was like, I can't remember how to draw. But I just got, I sort of researched everything I could possibly think of that they might mention so that I knew what it looked like in my head before I began. But usually I just wing it and I just turn up and I'm like, I'll draw whatever you talk about. Illustrators are usually quite solitary, aren't they? Like, I hide away in a dark studio. I'm going to do a, a weird drawing. No one look over my shoulder. Whereas you're the, the opposite, Katie. You're right in it. Everyone watching you draw as entertainment. How did you deal with the the bravery issue and the confidence? I don't know. I think like the main thing that I love about it is that it's done. I can't procrastinate because it has to happen live. And then there's no changes because it's live. (laughs) And it's like all the things that I hated about traditional illustration were me putting it off until the very last minute and hating every minute of it. And then them asking for changes. And both of those things are not involved in live illustration. So... When I'm feeling nervous, I'm like, but then when it's done, I can go to sleep and they will <laughs> never talk to me again. <laughs> like, I'm so jealous. I can't, I'm honestly, <laughs> well, I, the job I'm working on now is going at such breakneck speed. The only blessing is there is no time for change. So I'm glad I'm old and experienced where I can think, no, don't put that in because they won't like it. And then it will be a disaster when it's printed. Just stay safe because this is going to print tomorrow morning. I'm interested to know what you've edited out Tanya, that you've thought, they won't like that, I won't put it in. It's nothing exciting. I I wish I could give you something really thrilling, but it was basically a suitcase with... Oh, it's dangerous stuff like, oh, that looks too much like a Louis Vuitton suitcase. Take all the pattern off it. You get to the stage where you think, oh, they'll always get upset about that. Don't put it in, even if I want to. 
So yeah, Katie, you're in the right place with a, it's over, it's done, I performed it, it's finished. Yeah, if you don't like it, tough. (laughs) It's just nice to share proper inside stories about each other's career and find out how many commonalities there are. And I think lots of people who might consider doing the course share the same things. It's the bits that you never talk about are actually your major concerns, which is, who am I? Who is my work? And that's what the course is hopefully, well, given the testimonials, that's what our course does address, is spending some time to find out who you really are and how that looks in your work. Yeah, and what effect that has on your career. Like, once you know your creative voice, you become kind of a magnet, don't you, to, like, the work you want to do more of. You stand out from the crowd. Yeah, it's the key to a long career, isn't it? I think it's also, um, it's similar to the the role you occupy amongst friends or socially. If you are someone who's very sure of themselves, you are calm, you know who you are, you know what you do, that attracts people and people remember you for who you are because you're a safe pair of hands and you stand out. Shall we talk a little bit about the course? We're going to launch the course again at Art Club on Friday. So people who don't know about Art Club, every Friday on Instagram, Katie and I go live from 8pm UK time for about an hour. And we do some really fast time drawings, don't we? And there's usually a lot of hilarity and I've often been known to end up crying with laughing. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, if you want to get a taster of what we do, come to Art Club on Friday and Friday 31st of July. We, at the end of Art Club, we open the doors to our course. Yes, and then there's, the doors are open for one week and then at the next Art Club on Friday the 7th of August we'll close the doors and the course will be in your inbox if you choose to sign up at 10am UK time on the 10th of August. And early birds get a special extra Zoom draw-along. So if you sign yeah. up over the first weekend you get an extra Zoom call with the three of us. Which was really good fun last time, wasn't it? It was brilliant. Yeah, the celebratory. It was, yeah. Because we'd got to know everyone on the course by then through Facebook and through interacting with them. So when we all joined up for a last-minute draw, it really felt like a proper community. And, of course, celebration. Yeah, so if, if you know you want to sign up, it's worth jumping straight in so you get that extra bonus. So it's, it's the end of the podcast now, and in our course, we never know how to end the videos and say bye, so this podcast is gonna be the same. So bye! <laughs> bye! <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the course, you can go to thegoodshipillustration.com, and we we'll look forward to seeing you there.